This is from Nehemiah 1, 4 through 10. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. The word of the Lord. Will you read that last? I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. So we began a series uh, last week titled, Come Let Us Rebuild. And uh, it's a study in the book of Nehemiah. And I shared that um, we felt like, after a lot of prayer, that this was a wise an appropriate place for us to camp out in Scripture and this part of the redemptive story uh, as a result of where we're at in the life of our church, um, that we are still in and hoping to come out of a difficult two years. Uh, this book is set in the return from the Babylonian and Persian exile. And so what we've just gone through as a people, a church community, as a nation, as a world, is probably in some ways the closest thing for us in this room uh, that, to an exile that many of us have experienced. Uh, there's been a loss of a lot of things, a lot of rhythms uh, that we value, relationships and the rhythms of those relationships. There's been a loss of a lot of independence, a lot of control. There's just been change on so many fronts. So this book is, is set coming out of exile, and that's why we're studying it. And I was really encouraging us to consider uh, that we are all... Uh, coming out of this, really, I, I hear people say this a lot, I'm, I'm tr I just want things to get back to normal, or what is it even normal at this point? This idea of we're all attempting to rebuild some vision of life that we have, right? A life that we want, a life that we believe we need, maybe a life that we believe we're entitled to, right? Or we hope that God wants for us. We're, we're hungry to build or rebuild and affect change in that direction in the seasons of our lives, in the season of our church. And the question I want us to ask this morning, we're going to get to this through Nehemiah's prayers, is are we rebuilding, the rebuilding that you and I are doing, because we're doing it, we're trying, are we rebuilding with God's vision and God's heart for us, for his world, for our community, and how would we know? Well, Nehemiah gives us a lot of help right here in this prayer 
uh, and guides us because he's been in this exact place before, okay? So Nehemiah is rebuilding Jerusalem. If you weren't here last week, I'll give you a little snapshot. He's rebuilding Jerusalem after the Babylonian and Persian exile. It was an extended difficult season for the Israelites, like 150 years. So we've got like 148 more to go, okay? Uh, and this guy, Nehemiah, because of his position, you know, uh, Caitlin read, he was a cupbearer to the king. Because of his position, he could have easily gone the road of just look out for number one, right? He had a really secure job as cupbearer to the king. He was living in the, you know, the summer home in the, in the Persian uh, palace in Susa, right? And I said this last week, the exilic times, they always tend to make people more insular, Right? Exilic times, it was true for them, I believe I've seen it for me, for us. Exilic times have me stop thinking about the we, and it really begins to to create a deeper focus on myself. And what's astounding is, is that because of the way that God was moving in the life of Nehemiah, we don't see Nehemiah do that, right? He says in chapter two that the spirit of God was working in him in such a way to put something on his heart to do for the people of Israel, right? And that started with him really seeing and hearing and listening. Remember, he asked questions of the guys that are returning. He's really curious about their situation and curious about the situation in Jerusalem. And what he finds out is is that they're in disgrace. They're in trouble. The city has been absolutely redecimated again, torn down. It's just a pile of rubble and flames, right? And so through mourning and fasting and this prayer that we're about to study, Nehemiah actually moves from a place of curiosity to real deep conviction about, Lord, what are you calling me to do and how are you calling me to step into this rebuilding process? And that that mourning and that fasting, that prayer, we'll maybe say something about this. It was four months of that before he actually went and did what he does when he asks Artaxerxes what he asks him. So four months of mourning and fasting and prayer. So let's, let's look at Nehemiah's prayer this morning, because I believe it will help guide us um, to know what it looks like to rebuild with God's vision, how to actually get a vision through prayer, right? And I don't know about your prayer life. Maybe when we talk about prayer, you feel really ashamed. I do. Uh, I oftentimes think I'm the pastor of a church. I should pray way more than I pray, right? Let me just tell you, uh, if you swear, swearing is the lowest form of prayer, so all of us pray. Uh, But (laughs) the prayer that we're about to learn uh, from this morning is really about how to move into a deeper form of conviction about the Lord leading us. And there's a lot to glean in here from our brother, but we're going to use it a little differently. I told you we're going to do something different right up top. I thought we would use it more like a guide this morning, and we would actually, I'm going to teach a little bit. And then we're going to practice a little bit. And then I'm going to teach a little bit. And then we're going to practice a little bit. So this is going to be more like a Peloton class than it is a, a sermon, right? So if you didn't you know, wear your workout clothes tough, I'm sorry. Uh, no, we're going to practice it so that as we enter in through prayer, as we enter in, the, the band is equipped to help us through song in that way and some silence. Uh, my hope is, is that it would slow us down so that the truth of what is being prayed here would sink in, it would ground us and give us an experience or teach us how to have an experience of the Lord, not just necessarily learn some clever things about prayer, okay? So, first thing I have to say this about the prayer, and then we'll get into the prayer. There's a pattern in this prayer, 
Um, and it's not a pattern that is unique to Nehemiah, okay? His prayers, if you were a student of the Old Testament like he was, his prayers echo former prayers and petitions of Moses, of David, of Solomon, of Daniel, of Jehoshaphat, of his contemporary Ezra. Like if you did a cross-reference of all the things that are being said in here, it would be a giant list of how he's pulled from all over, right? His, his former and contemporaries prayers. And what I want us to understand about that is this. Uh, Nehemiah is not just shooting from the hip here. Scripture is what shapes his prayers, okay? Nehemiah had to learn how to pray and how to have a prayer life by being shown what a prayer life looks like, right? That's why the Psalms, we have an entire book in the Bible. So if you want to learn how to pray, the Psalms are an excellent place to start because they actually shape and teach us this is what a prayer life looks like. And if you study the Psalms, you realize, man, a prayer life is pretty robust. I can, I can bring everything and anything to the Lord in prayer, right? But Nehemiah, just like us, he had to learn that. Because left to himself, just like us left to ourselves, our prayers would probably just be all about us. But that's not what we see in here. His prayer is about something else. So Scripture shaped his prayers, and he is simply praying in a way that had been modeled for him, there's an acronym, and you can write this down, and if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard this before, ACTS, right? It's clever because it's actually a name in the Bible, which would make it hard to forget. ACTS, right, which is adoration, confession, thankfulness, and then supplication, okay? Those are the four things we're going to do today. Adoration, confession, thankfulness, and then supplication. That's what we see Nehemiah do here. So if you don't have a prayer life, right? And you're like, man, I feel guilty about that. I feel like I should have more of a prayer life. That's, that's a great trellis to actually begin to develop a prayer life, right? And I would just say this, if you do have a prayer life, because most of us, I said, do in a form of bad language, right? If you do have a prayer life and it doesn't have those components, I would argue that's actually limiting your experience of the Lord in prayer, it's not that it's a wrong thing. It's just going to limit how you experience the Lord in prayer because that's what prayer is ultimately about. Let me say that really clearly. That is what prayer is about, is not bringing myself to the Lord or my needs to the Lord. We can do that, right? But remember in Psalm 139, he says that he searches and he knows your hearts and he knows your thoughts and your words before they're on your tongue. And he knows your needs before any of your needs. So he knows you. You don't have to bring you to him. Most people think prayer is that. It's not that. He knows you. He knows you better than you know you. Prayer is not bringing myself to the Lord. It is opening the door for the Lord to come to me. That's what Revelation says. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Prayer is the Lord knocking on the door of you. He's saying, I know what's going on inside of there. Will you let me in to what's going on inside of you? And prayer is letting King Jesus, the great and awesome God, we'll, we'll adore here in a second, to come in and to begin to actually shape my experience of him, shape my prayers to him, change me, transform my heart, create in me a new heart like David prayed. That's what happens when the king comes in. So I'm not bringing myself to the Lord. I'm opening the door so that the Lord can come in to me. And he's given me this grace called prayer to do that. 
not to change him, but to change me. All right? So the first thing, I'll reread verses 1, 4 to 6. When I heard these things, when he heard the state of Jerusalem, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, for your servants, the people of Israel. First thing he does is what? He adores, okay? The first thing we see Nehemiah doing is, is he is remembering something very, very important, who he is coming before. Oftentimes, we don't think like that. I don't pray like that, right? But what he's doing is, is he's coming in submissive awe. He says things like, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, the one who keeps his covenant love, right? I said a few weeks ago that, you know, we, the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. He doesn't have the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt on, right? He's coming before the great and mighty creator and king of the universe. And what he's doing in adoring him is, is he's getting low, right? He's getting low. He's posturing his heart in an appropriate way. And he's looking up at the Lord to his complete and total otherness, right? I'm humbling myself. Like, we've all been to a concert before, right? Like, I think about being, have you ever been front row at a concert, like a legit concert? Where if someone like Bono or somebody is up there, they're, they're up on stage at the concert, right? And the artists, none of us who are down there, pressed up against the front of that thing, think, I should be up there, right? He's, <laughs> he's the one who's supposed to be up there because he's Bono, right? He's the star. And I'm just the person down here who's basking in the glory, right? And so it's really powerful when the artist, right? We've all been there when the artist decides to come down off the stage, right? And mingle with us plebeians down there, right? It's powerful, right? But we never expect him to stay down there. Like, hey, hang out down here the rest of the concert, right? No, because he belongs up there. That's who he is, right? And that's what Nehemiah gets. No, no, no. You, you may come down and meet with me, but you belong up there on the stage, right? That's why he gets low and he calls himself and he calls Israel your servants six times in six verses. What's he saying when he's saying there? He's saying, we're not equals here, right? I'm your servant. We're your servants, right? He starts by seeing the Lord and himself rightly. He adores the Lord. And I encourage us, if we shove off in prayer from any other place, then we likely won't experience much headway in our prayer life. Because the prayer life begins with that. It begins with adoration. Now, this is not going to surprise you, but there's challenges to this, right? My pride doesn't want to see the Lord that way and doesn't want to see myself that way, right? I have a deep sense because of what sin has done to me, right? Sin makes me see myself as equal with God, and sin has me sensing I know better than you about everything, right? So without adoration, it's like me in the audience. Instead of allowing for the artist to come down, right? It's like me being the drunk guy who climbs up on stage. 
and believes I belong up here. Give me the microphone, right? That's probably a horrible illustration, but you get it. I'm trying to climb on stage with God rather than allowing him to come down. And the Lord, he loves to come down. He loves it. But make no mistake, he's coming down, right? That's what he's doing. So I want us to spend a few minutes now. This may be hard for you because you, you may not spend any time in your life adoring the Lord, like actively choosing to look at him for who he is and praise him for who he is, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, your covenant love. Those are just three places you can start, but I'm going to ask us to do that right now. We're going to spend some time adoring the Lord in prayer. I want you to pray right now. Eventually the band will lead us uh, in some music. But use this time to adore him, to acknowledge who he is and who we are before him, okay? Let's be quiet and let's pray. So Nehemiah moves from adoration to this. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands. Decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. He moves from adoration to confession. He's confessing sin, and he's not just confessing the ones that he's personally committed. Right? But he's confessing the sins of his fathers, of his ancestors. He just keeps saying, we, 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 right? He's confessing generational sin, right? And we tend to distance ourselves from that, or I'll just use an I statement. I tend to distance myself from that, right? Like this is a tough one for us, I think, primarily because um, we are in such a hyper-individualistic world and society. And we value, and it's not bad to value this, but we value almost over anything else, personal responsibility, personal accountability, right? But maybe to the point to where we've actually lost a sense of our, our collective consciousness, our collective sin, right? Like, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I can think of sin only in the terms of the specific offenses that I've done against another person, right? Which is sin, that's called a sin of commission, right? I'm sinning against you. But there's another type of sin that, that Nehemiah is getting at, right? Which is the sin of apathy. It's the sin of neglect. It's the sin of indifference to what the Lord has called them to do. Who the Lord called them to be literally as the beacon of his grace and who he is to the world, right? Those are called sins of omission. And he's confessing both of those things, right? James 4 says it like this, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, that is sin for them, right? So for us this morning, I would just encourage us, maybe you're really comfortable confessing your specific sin that you've done, right? I get that. I, these sins I've committed. But Nehemiah doesn't seem hung up at all on actually confessing sins of omission as well, right? 
He's going to confess and repent for the sins that he committed personally, but he's also going to confess the sins that his community, his people, and his ancestors have committed. And I, I would just want to ask you, if you have a hard time doing that, you should ask why. Because it's not tough for Nehemiah. He's modeling that for us, right? Like I know for me, I love, <laughs> sorry mom and dad, it's real easy to confess the sins that my parents have done against me, right? Things that happened to me by them or another an authority, or authority figure, right? And to acknowledge those places in their life. But it's a lot harder for me to acknowledge the places that I'm just like them, right? You've heard me say it before. If you can see it in them, it's in you somewhere, right? So that's what Nehemiah is doing right now. He's saying, I see it in them and it's in me somewhere, right? And that could be its own sermon. We could keep preaching on that. But Nehemiah simply displays something that we're going to practice right now. And that's this, that before the king, before the one we've just adored, we all have sin to confess. Sin that we have done and sin that maybe we haven't personally done, but the state of sin, that the sins of our ancestors, our families, the way that sin has shaped us into a place of, at times, apathy, indifference, and disobedience. We just live there, right? But Nehemiah is saying, before the Lord, there's no, like, them and then me. It's us. It's we. So let's spend some time now confessing our sin to the Lord, both of them. Sins of commission, I did this. And sins of omission, Lord, I know you call me to do this and I don't right? You've called us to live like this, and we don't. You've called me to love my neighbor as myself, and I don't. You've called me to certain ways and rhythms of life. You've set me free by your grace and by your spirit to live this way, and I don't. You've called me to care and fight for the good of other people, and I don't. So let's spend some time confessing our sin to the Lord together.
confesses his sin and then it says this he remembers something remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the nations but if you return to me and obey my commands 
then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So, (laughs) I read some guy this week, he said, God is always more eager to forgive our sins than we are to confess them. That's what I think Nehemiah gets. Uh, He doesn't wallow in confession there. He, He confesses his sin, but then he quickly moves into what we just sang, which is, is that I'm thankful, Lord, uh, and I remember the truth of who you are, which is a, a covenant-keeping God, the one who keeps your covenant love, right? And that's what Nehemiah does after confessing his sin, is he moves into this posture of thankfulness. That's what repentance is, y'all. Repentance is not self-flagellating, trying to prove to God that you understand how bad you blew it. You don't understand how bad you blew it. Give up on that, right? Let it go. He's not, he's not up there wringing his hands saying, gosh, I hope you really figure out how bad it is, right? He knows how bad it is. Repentance is actually stepping into the thankfulness because even though I don't know how bad it is, he's not trying to get me to move out of a place of shame. That's what, that's what non-repentance looks like. Okay, I'm just gonna try to obey you more now because I feel like I ought. That's not repentance. That's not thankfulness. Thankfulness is, is, I know I don't know how to obey you, and I won't, and I'll blow it again, but I'm thankful that you're who you are because you keep your word. I don't. Hallelujah. That's where we should all be like, right? You keep your word. You keep your covenant love to those that are yours. Even so much that he says this, if you are unfaithful, remember the instruction you get to Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Thank you, God. This one's tough, y'all. Thank you that you promise to discipline me in my unfaithfulness. Oof. Thank God that even when I'm unfaithful to you, you'll be faithful to discipline me like a father because that's what a father does. A father that loves his kids disciplines his kids. That's what Hebrews says. It's not pleasant at the time, but it's a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Thank you that when I'm unfaithful, you discipline me, right? Because they were disciplined. That's why they were in the Babylonian and Persian exile. Their sin got them there, not God, right? I let you be taken off in your sin and in your rebellion to chastise you, to discipline you. But what? Even though you're suffering the fruit of your sin, but... If you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people who are from the farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What's he saying there? Even though that's true, even though I'm, I'm faithful and I will do what I say, I will discipline you. I will provide a way for you to return. I will provide a way for relationship to be restored, right? I will provide a way for you to be regathered to a place where my name will dwell. What's he saying there? He's saying, I am a God of grace. I am a God of mercy. That's what the gospel is all about. Because in those days, if you broke the covenant, that was a life or death thing, right? That's what the covenants were in the Old Testament. I make a covenant between two of us. You break the covenant, you die, right? And yet God is showing right here, Nehemiah is thanking God for it, your grace, your mercy, that you provide a way back from the exile that our sin has created. Thank you. So thankfulness is that turning of repentance. It's not 
oh my goodness, confess and then just shame myself into more effort, right? Because Israel did this time and again. They returned, they obeyed, they fell away. They (laughs) returned, obeyed, they fell away. Me too, us too, right? But God is showing here, and obviously we have a better picture of this, this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that eventually one is going to come, a Savior, who is the way, the truth, the life, the way back to the place that our exile, the eternal separation that our exile deserved, right? The way back through Jesus, who's our intercessor, who always obeyed the Father's will. He obeyed perfectly in ways that we could not. He never left the Father's will so that you and I could have a new name, have a secure place. We have been gathered, and he has put his name on us. Church, right? So let's spend a few minutes now thanking him for his grace, right? Thanking him for his covenant, his steadfast love, his providing a way out from under the full weight and the consequences of our sin and the sin of our forefathers, the sin that we've done and the sin that's been done to us. If you don't know how to do that, literally ask the Lord this, restore me, this is what David prayed, restore me to the joy of my salvation because that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Golly, remember, this is who you are. You keep your word. You keep your word to discipline me and you keep your word to save me. All right, so let's spend some time in thankfulness.
Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. after adoration and confession and thankfulness, finally Nehemiah gets to his request. <laughs> and I laughed about this because I'm like, man, this is where I start normally, right? <laughs> Here's my list. Here you go. But I'd argue this, that we don't even know what to ask him for. Because remember, Jesus said, if you ask for anything in my name, I'll give it to you. That's always been a confusing thing in Scripture. What does it mean to ask for something in His name? He says that in John 14, and in John 15, He says, Remain in me and remain in my love, because apart from me you can do nothing. Which is effectively saying this, Apart from me you won't even know what to ask for in my name, because you haven't spent any time with me. You may be spending time with an idea you have about me, but if you haven't spent any time in adoration, any time in confession, any time in thankfulness, if I'm going straight with my supplication, my requests, I don't even know what to ask for. I don't know what to ask for if I haven't, like Psalm 37 says, delighted in him so that he can give me the desires of my heart. 
right? Actually shape my heart's desires after the things he desires, right? So what does Nehemiah ask for? He says, they are your servants, your great people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, right? Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, which was Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And he says, I was cupbearer to the king. What he asked for is he asked for favor with Artaxerxes, right? That word favor literally means, will you have this man have compassion on me? Have him have compassion on me and on the people because I'm about to go do something. And we don't know this yet unless you've read the book. I'm about to go ask something of him that's going to be incredibly difficult, right? And he's cupbearer to the king, which is basically, we think of that in terms of like old Monty Python movies or something like some weaselly person who like tastes the wine and hopes he doesn't die, right? That's not what that was. Cupbearer to the king was literally like a royal advisor. It had been like being the, the secretary of state in the president's cabinet, like a big, big person, second only to princes, right? Highly esteemed, totally trusted. You've got the king's back if you're the cupbearer to the king, right? And he's taking a risk here because he's about to go ask Artaxerxes to go back on a decision that he's already made. Artaxerxes had already decided, I'm not going to allow Jerusalem to get rebuilt. It had started under Zerubbabel, right? And then another wave under Ezra. And actually, under Artaxerxes, you can go read about this in Ezra 4, these three guys, Bishlem, Midriath, and Tabiel, right? That sounds like a law firm, right? <laughs> the law firm of Bish, Bishlem, Midriath, and Tabiel basically argued to him this, right? If you allow this to happen... These Jews, they're rebellious people. They will eventually get strong enough and rise up against you, and you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates, right? These people are a rebellious people. You are going to lose revenue. This is going to be a risk to your kingdom. And so these guys had actually convinced Artaxerxes, don't let them do it. So the rebuilding that had already begun under Ezra, they wiped it out again. Back to ground zero. Delta variant. Whatever you want to call it, Right? Boom. And so Nehemiah is actually going and saying to Artaxerxes, hey, I want you to go back on what you already decided. And those three guys, their advice to you, the fear that they put in you, that your kingdom is going to be completely upended, I want you to ignore all of that, and I want you to hear what I have to say. And I want you to reverse a decision that could risk not just, I mean, this was risky for Nehemiah, because he could have been seen by Artaxerxes as somebody who was trying to undermine the kingdom. So this could have been a death a death mission. He could have gone in and Artaxerxes could have been like, what are you doing? I've already decided about this, right? But he's also asking Artaxerxes to risk. I know these guys painted a picture of risk, but I'm asking you to risk your own kingdom and and costs to you. And I'll just say it like this. That's how we know we're getting somewhere in prayer, okay? That's how we know we're getting somewhere in our supplication. When my prayers and my requests aren't just about my life, right? About my needs, right? But a prayer that flows out of adoration and confession and thankfulness and repentance, it actually gets me to the place where I seek the Lord for the good of other people. 
And I actually seek the Lord for favor, but it's not for favor for me. What he's seeking favor for is he's basically saying this, give me the grace and this man, Artaxerxes, this pagan foreign king, the grace to sacrifice our own comforts and our own lives for the good of these exiles. Woo! There we go. Now we're praying. Because I don't actually do that, right? I need grace. I need the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit in my life to have my supplication get down to that point. I'm not just praying about me. I'm praying about we. And Nehemiah is praying this, please allow me to intercede for the needs of Israel. Let me rebuild Jerusalem. Let me go minister to those who are in disgrace, those who are in trouble, right? Whose heart does that reflect? I'll tell you what, just go look at Jesus. Because everything from his incarnation, which was him leaving his palace in Susa, right? He's the better Nehemiah. He's leaving in his incarnation to come down off stage to us down in the concert, right? In the mosh pit. His life, his death, his resurrection, even in his ascension. Hebrews says he lives today, right now. If you don't know this, Jesus is interceding for you in this moment. For all of us. He lives to intercede. Nehemiah is simply reflecting the heart of the king. Let me intercede for these people. Let me step in. And that's what his supplication was about. So let's spend some time in supplication, and then we'll close our time. And let me just say this. It is not wrong for you to bring your needs to the Lord. Remember, he already knows them. So you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on them. Matthew 6 says most of your worry is about forgetting that you don't remember that he already knows all of your needs. So it's not wrong to bring him before the Lord, but what we're following our brother here in is this, Lord, would you grant me favor to actually pray for others, right? Give me the grace to put myself on the line to love something other than my own comfort and my own self or my own family, right? So let's pray in that way. If you're wondering about things to pray about, turn on the TV. Afghanistan, Waverly. How many people are not here this morning because their kids are already sick? There's a million things that we can pray about for other people and ask the Lord, how do you want me to step into this stuff? And, and just, you are stepping into it by praying about it right now, okay? We say this a lot. Well, I don't know if I said it recently. Church is over, uh, and, and if what we did is just church, then it's, it's done. But if we are the church, we leave here as those who have just practiced something that is not limited to this space. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to practice that every day of our lives. So would you go as those who are growing in your capacity to adore Jesus? He is worth adoring, and he adores you, <laughs> right? Would you go as those who aren't afraid to confess your sins? Because he sees it all anyways, and um, he's not ashamed of you, right? He loves you, and he wants to heal you <laughs> and restore you, right? Would you go as those who are growing in thankfulness, and practicing thankfulness. We're, we're short on it. Gratitude is short these days, all right? And would you go as those who then out of that place, let him shape your, your, your requests, right? Because they'll change how you pray because uh, you'll begin to pray for things that you don't pray for normally.